I know it's a little dangerous to start with a five-line quote, <laughs> but here it is. <clears throat> I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. I'll say it again. I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. That quote right there contains a lot of wisdom. Wisdom that can be applied for decades. Churches are always in need of protecting the centrality of the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you read through the scriptures in the New Testament, you see that time and time and time after again in the letters that the authors there are holding out to the church the imperative of guarding the gospel. And though we, though we come 2,000 years after many of these letters were written, and 2,000 years after many of these churches were established, we too need to fight to protect the gospel, to protect the center, lest the power of the local church weaken and the church draw to a dead halt. The gospel is to be supreme in the life and the ministry of the local church. Two weeks ago, we began our new series in the book of 1 Timothy. You can go ahead and turn there with me. And there, the Apostle Paul writes to a young pastor, a, very, a young man, and he lays out for him what his priorities ought to be as he nurses this church back to health. And interestingly for you all, especially as you're about to vote on a man to call him to be your assistant pastor. Paul lays out the priorities for every pastor and for every church that has ever been and ever will be. So today we finish looking at the rest of First Timothy. And we see again that the pastor and the church should labor for gospel centrality. The church and the pastor should labor for gospel centrality. I'll go ahead and read the entire first chapter so that way we get the flow of where we're going to focus on, which is verses 8 to 20. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we may know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent op opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience 
as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So last week we saw that if this church was to be nursed back to health, Timothy must recover the gospel. Primarily through the preaching of it. And then encouraging folks to live lives that accord with it. Today we continue that logic by looking at specifically the supremacy of the gospel. The supremacy of the gospel. And we see the supremacy of the gospel here that Paul is arguing for over the law. That's point number one. The supremacy of the gospel over the law. I'll read again 8 to 11. This is point number one. The supremacy of the gospel over the law. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual sexual immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which with which I have been entrusted. So you see how logically this passage flows from what has come before there. He says, now we know. Now we know he's here. He's offering a clarification, an explanation. Let me recap verses three to seven there. Paul had encouraged Timothy to tell the false teachers to not teach different doctrine. Rebuke them, he says, because what they were doing was using the Old Testament law, it seems, or myths about the Old Testament and then maybe the genealogies expanded regarding the Old Testament. They were using those things to their own ends. Using them with, to the, with wrong methods, wrong interpretations. So they got the content wrong and then their methodology was wrong as well. They're using it wrongly. The emphasis, they emphasized certain things that led to what Paul says, vain discussions, endless genealogies. And you can almost tell that Paul is somewhat sort of at an end with this. He's had it. Endless genealogies. These teachers, you can imagine they might huddle in the corner discussing, having grand discussions about these endless genealogies and mythologies. Interestingly enough, though they are the ones using the law and wanting to be law teachers, they're using it unlawfully. In a way that God hadn't intended. It's a wrong use of the law. The problem is. That in so doing. They were obscuring the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the issue right. They're using the Old Testament. And you guys probably know of other teachers. Who might use the Bible. To their own ends. To accomplish. Or sorry for their own means. And to accomplish their own ends. And they obscure the true gospel. The true intent of the word. You know people throughout. Christian history have always gotten distracted, mid misled, or as me and Melanie say, they got squirreled over the unlawful use of the law. What I mean by squirreled, um, you can think of the movie Up. How many of you guys have seen the movie Up? Uh, and so, you know, there's a pack of dogs and they play the role of the henchmen of their bad leader. And these dogs are competent at what they do, right? The the leader tells them to go and find this really ultra rare bird. And so the dogs, you know, they run after the bird. But, and you look at these dogs, they're intelligent. I mean, they're talking dogs after all, right? Uh, They're really intelligent. They get the job done. Uh, They're really intimidating. But unfortunately, even though the, the rare bird might be right in front of them, it only takes one dog to see a squirrel and say, squirrel! And then everybody's off. You know, you're, th- you're thinking they're like, oh, my goodness, you guys are dogs. Uh, and, you know, there goes the whole entire mission just sort of cascading down into oblivion. They got squirreled. <laughs> when it comes to following Jesus and understanding the law, people get squirreled all the time. These folks, Jewish myths, endless genealogies, 
right? There might be genealogies in the Bible. There certainly are genealogies in the Bible, but for some reason they're having glorious discussions about genealogies as opposed to the gospel. People get squirreled by legalism. Christians might say, you know, I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but I need to follow the law in order to earn my salvation or to stay in good graces with God. People get squirreled by antinomianism. Antinomianism, which says grace covers all my sins so I can, in fact, go on sinning. I don't need to pursue holiness or righteousness. Those are people who live without a law. But given that there are so many ways to get squirreled, so many ways to use the law unlawfully, the natural question that these folks would have, because Timothy is supposed to receive the letter and then read it to everybody else, the natural question is, what what do we make of the law? If these people are using the law unlawfully, how exactly do we use the law lawfully with God's intent behind it? And with this in mind, Paul says, the law is not for the just, but for sinners. Right, you see that there? Now we know, so he's offering clarification, that the law is good. It is good, guys. It is good. The Old Testament law, if used lawfully. Understanding this, keeping this in mind, with this method, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for sinners, he says there. So God's intention for the law is that it will be used as law for sinners. Uh, And what it does, it exposes lawlessness. Now, the just or the people who think that they are just or the self-righteous, you know, we, Jesus, he, when he came, he said, I did not come to call the just or the righteous, but the sinners, the unrighteous, the unholy to repentance. So the, the folks who think that they're just, the folks who think that they're already righteous, they have no need for the law because even if the law exposed to them their own unrighteousness, they would say, I don't have a problem anyways. So Paul here is saying that the law is given, has been given, divinely given from on high to us. Not for the just, for the self-righteous, for the people who think that they're okay. Uh, But for sinners, he says. Jesus, just as Jesus called sinners to repentance. So you have Jesus Christ, the Holy One, calling the unholy. So God gave the law for sinners. And what he was doing was calling sinners to himself through the law even. I'm going to explain what that means. The eight and nine, the laws for sinners, it is for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, that is people who buy and sell other people, liars perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed god with which i have been entrusted now if you guys are a young if any of you are young christians or new to christianity knowing that god gave his law basically you can use the word law to summarize the whole entire old testament The law could also be referred to as the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, Here, I think he's just referring to the whole entire Old Testament, the law, which shows that things are right and things are good. When you know that God gave his law for people, people who do these types of sins, you may be tempted to think the God of the Bible is all about sin and telling people they're sinners. That's what the God of the Bible is about. Well, I wouldn't put it that way. But know that God is determined that people see themselves as they really are. That is sinful. So when God created the first people, that is Adam and Eve, they rebelled against him, earning for themselves just condemnation and judgment against the holy God, the only king, the only sovereign. He approaches them. He doesn't destroy them immediately, but instead he draws near to them. And he lets them know that they have sinned. So you see that there. He's he's letting people know. He's determined that people would see themselves as they really are. Namely, that they are sinful. And then you can think about, uh, let's say, the Ten Commandments. God again draws near to a people. And God knows that the people are going to rebel. 
as Moses is going to walk down with the tablets of the law in this uh, idolatry. He knows that, but yet he gives them the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments were given in order to expose unrighteousness, to let people know that they really are sinful. You can read through the prophets, for example. The same thing happens, message after message after message. I have a message to the northern folks of Israel and then the southern folks of Judah. They are sinful. I have a message for the surrounding nations of Israel who do unrighteousness and practice injustice against others. They too are sinful. They have abandoned me. Yet I was gracious to them. So, so time and time again, we see that God has determined that people see themselves as they really are, namely sinners. Jesus does the same thing. He calls sinners, after all, to himself that they would be saved. Um, Galatians 3 comments on why God gave his law. Go ahead and turn there. Galatians chapter 3. I mean, here we have New Testament explanation and commentary on all of the Old Testament. Why exactly do we have the whole entire Old Testament? Well, he tells us there. Verse 19, chapter 3 of Galatians. Why then the law? Why exactly do we have the law? Because it doesn't save us. It doesn't make us righteous in front of God. It was added because of transgressions. Because people sinned, God therefore gave the law. And then go ahead and look at 22. It says, but the scripture, there he's referring to the Old Testament. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That is, it exposed people to be sinful. It imprisoned everything under sin. You see that there? And then 23. Now, before faith came, that is the age of faith, after Jesus Christ came, after salvation in Christ was declared to all by faith alone. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned. So there, it's because of sins that God gave the actual law. The question is why? Is God like some sort of sadistic chp officer who goes around ha, delighting in tickets giving them one after the other after the other and in my driving history my first 10 years i got 10 speeding tickets so i had a lot of interaction with chp officers uh sadly to my dad's wallet <clears throat> um is it because he delights in this sort of telling everybody you're sinners with this sort of vindictive attitude delighting in the misfortune of others no it's actually because he cares about the safety and salvation of sinners people were sinners long before the law was given right long before adam and eve hundreds of years hundreds of years you know god already drew abraham out he already uh gave him all the promises hundreds of years go by and then all of a sudden in exodus he gives the people the law so sin reigned the whole entire time, but for some reason he chose to give the law at that particular time because he cared about the salvation and safety of sinners. You see there, look again in Galatians 3.19. It was added, that is, the law was given because of transgressions until, that is, for a certain period of time, the offspring, that is Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. The promise, namely, that he would be the one to be a blessing to the nations. Look in 22. But the scripture, that is the law of the Old Testament, imprisoned everything under sin so that, here's the purpose, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I thought the law would bring them to their end and know that there is nothing I can do to get salvation except believe. You look in 23. Now, before faith came... That is the era of faith. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith, that is faith in Jesus Christ, should be revealed there. So that's the purpose, to expose our lawlessness as we ultimately are incapable, we're shown to be incapable of obeying the law. God gave the law, he knew that we would not be able to complete it so that our sin would be exposed. So that we would be able to see ourselves for who we are. But not only that, it is so that we would be saved from those very sins. So that we would be saved from those very sins. So I guess you could think of God as a, a 
good CHP officer, one that gave me a ticket on this one Sunday morning when I was zooming to church going at a very unsafe and very fast speed. <clears throat> he pulled me over. Uh, I saw him in the rearview mirror from far away, and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble because he's going faster than I am. Um, and so I just slowed down, didn't step on the brakes. I just knew I was, I knew I was caught. And he pulled me over. This is on the 57 and Lincoln exit. He pulled me over, and he goes, son, guys, where are you going? And I'm, I'm a Christian, right? I was going to worship practice because I was late. And I said, I'm, I'm late for church. <laughs> he said, in this stern, calm voice, he said, son, you keep on going that speed, you're going to see Jesus a lot sooner. <laughs> and he gave me the ticket. And I was glad to receive it. I received the ticket and the rebuke because, at least from what he said, he had my best interest in mind. Let's, let's assume he's a Christian. There, he's, he, he very well recognizes that if I continue driving at this very unsafe speed, that it's going to end in something bad. A car accident. So there, he's exposing my sin, my failure, and at the same time, letting me know, uh, caring about my safety. So the law does that. It exposes our sin so that, so that we would see our sin and be saved from it. That's the divine purpose of the law. That's why Paul calls the law our guardian until Christ came. Go ahead, look in Galatians again. He says there in 24, so then... Therefore, basically, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Incredible that God gives the law to us and it is supposed to be our guardian. The law, anything that exposes our sinfulness is God's. Imagine the heavenly courts appointed guardian for sinners. To be taken care of until the real one comes, until the father comes home, until our savior comes. And so the, the law is a guardian until Christ came. Verse 25, it says there, but now that faith has come, is in Galatians, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the law here is good and faithful. It's God's court, God's heavenly court appointed guardian that exposes sin and brings us to a savior. So for those who say that God of the Bible is all about sin, if you mean that God is all about our sin and that he exposes it because he wants to save us from it, then praise God. Praise God for being a God of sin. And that he's so determined to expose our sin so that we might fly to a savior. If that is what God is about, then it must be acknowledged that God is also a God, not only of holiness and righteousness, but also a God of love, mercy, grace, forgiveness. All about showing compassion to sinners, even though we deserved just punishment in hell. So I guess if you look at God's grand plan of salvation history from Genesis to Revelation, and we look at this period of the official Old Testament law... I guess you could say that God is a God of law, but you have to add on because he is a God of mercy. He gives the law in order that it might lead us to Jesus Christ, who alone can save and who alone obeyed all of the law perfectly. So if living under the guardian of the law means that means coming face to face with a holy God where I realize that I am not. And then that law helps me fly to a savior to receive forgiveness. Then give me the law. Right? That's why Paul delights in the law. But give me the law always in accordance with the gospel. Always in accordance with the gospel there. We today, First Baptist Church, want to value the law, but in accordance with the gospel. Always has its eye on salvation to Jesus Christ. So what does this mean for us? That means we value it just like Jesus valued it. Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There's value there. He doesn't discard it. He fulfills it. And one way we value it is by preaching 
men's people, men and women, their sinfulness. And it's not something that we shy away from. Unfortunately, I was talking with a group of people, my wife and I, at this wedding, and they were talking about how at a number of different weddings that they had been to, that they didn't see much Jesus there. And they were Christian weddings, and people preached sermons. And unfortunately, you know, the gospel wasn't really present. But here at First Baptist Church, we try not to shy away from the topic of sin. I mean, why would we? Because if our predicament is that we are caught in sin, dead in our transgressions and sins, following after the prince of the power of the air in our original state before Jesus. I mean, if that's our situation, we harm people by not telling them about their real situation in order that they might fly to Jesus Christ. It is not loving to not preach about sin. It is loving to preach about sin and to preach about how God demands change. So there we're happy to preach the law, preach things that reveal our sinfulness, but in accordance with the gospel. Now, hear that, but also hear at the same time that we are irresponsible, fatally irresponsible... If we preach the law without the gospel, irresponsible, doing damage to other people. If we preach the law without the gospel, imagine preaching the law, exposing us for what we do right and what we do wrong. And then never getting to Jesus, never saying that you can, in fact, be saved. If I tell you guys that you are acting rightly and wrongly and then you all realize that you're sinners and that's it, then you go away thinking, man, I really stink and I need to do better. That's just a natural heart's inclination. I failed. I need to do better. But that's the exact antithesis of the gospel. The law, once again, is given to us that it might expose our sinfulness and so that we might trust in the work of Jesus Christ. So we are fatally irresponsible if we preach the law without the gospel. So we don't ever want to mess with the law and its proper use because it's supposed to point people to Christ. If we don't point people to Christ, people aren't saved. The supremacy, there we see the supremacy of the gospel over the law because the law is subservient to the gospel. And Timothy is to use the law in this gospel-centered way. What's the purpose of the law then? He says, look, you use it in a gospel-centered way in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the mention, as we look now to the next section here, 12 to 17, the mention of the gospel leads Paul to sort of all of a sudden erupt in praise. It's like theology, as I tell my theology class, leads to doxology or the praising of God. Even in the law. The law leads to the gospel. Comprehending the gospel leads Paul to praise. And this is the transition here. Paul holds himself out in the next section as an example of God's saving mercy. And Paul says, God even saved a sinner like me. That's the proper use. That's the true gospel, the gospel that saves. Vain discussions, genealogies. You might be able to talk about those things. Some of you guys here might delight in talking about climbing into the storehouse of the Trinity and trying to understand all the intricacies, which I would encourage you to do, but never apart from the gospel that saves. You can have those types of discussions, endless genealogies, vain discussions, but this is what really saves, he says. So here, point two, we see the supremacy of the gospel in Paul's life. The supremacy of the gospel in Paul's life. He says, you want to see gospel truths, gospel dominance, gospel supremacy worked out? Look at my life. This here is an affirmation of the supremacy of the gospel via personal testimony not mere discussion, right? He's erupting in praise. That's why he calls it the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The glorious gospel of the blessed God is this eternal eruption, it seems, of praise to Jesus Christ, the one who saved him. And he speaks about this evolution that he goes through here in verse 12, the evolution of Paul. He's a sinner saved, and this is what makes him break out in thanks. Verse 12, he reflects on how he was called to be an apostle. Right? It says in 11 that he was entrusted with these things as an apostle. And then he thinks about how 
God, by his grace, took him from being a sinner and not only saved him, but now is, is using him as, uh, as an apostle to lay the foundation of the church. So he says, reflecting on his present situation, he says, I thank him who has given me strength. That is strength to carry out his apostolic charge. He was entrusted with the gospel, remember. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Now he's not saying, you know, thank God that he finally noticed how faithful I've been. That's not what he's saying. It's like he's saying to think that a holy God would consider me of all people worthy of this trust, entrusted with this gospel, even though I was a blasphemer, that is one who clearly rejected Jesus. And he not only was a blasphemer, but he persecuted the church. In Acts, he dragged people away, threw them into prison, and even oversaw the deaths of Christians. That's why he says that he was an insolent man, a violent man. And there is reason to thank God because it's God's gospel that changed him. That's what he's meditating on. That I know that I am a sinner and the law convicted me and it made me go to Jesus Christ. Verse 13b. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You see that there? He says, I received mercy. Also translated, some of your Bibles might say, I was shown mercy. Both basically say the same thing. Paul is passive here and God is the one doing the revealing or the showing. And Paul is receiving or beholding. I was shown the mercy. I received mercy. And the very definition of mercy is that he was not given what he deserved. He knows that he was worthy of God's wrath. But God showed him mercy. By his divine sovereignty and his grace and his love, wanting to save him. Now, in thirteen, we shouldn't understand that the verse. We shouldn't understand the verse to read that God gave him mercy because he was ignorant. Uh, what Paul is doing here is he's referring something to, in something to the Old Testament about how unintentional sins had a different uh, consequence than an intentional sin. So that's what he's drawing on there. He's just making reference that his sin wasn't high-handed against this Jesus. Even though he was guilty, even though he was worthy of God's wrath, uh, he persecuted Christians um, in a way that was not in the face of Jesus. Namely, he knew who Jesus was, and yet he continued to persecute him. This was more like unintentional. He didn't know who Jesus was, but yet still he was guilty. He's just making reference to that. And look at all the things that he delights in. He said he was shown mercy. He received mercy. But he's delighting in all these things. Which is what sinners do when they come face to face with their sin. Not only being shown mercy, but verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Overflowed for me. It's personal here. With the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So here you have mercy, grace, overflowing for him and then as god brings him into christ union with christ he is now in the realm of faith and love believing in jesus and loving his savior there's absolutely no problem with paul talking about himself being a blasphemer a violent man a persecutor because those things highlight for paul all the more the grace of god and he's moved by the gospel of jesus because it has to do with sinners being saved by grace, mercy, and love. It has to do with being known and knowing Jesus Christ. That's what the church and her apostles and every pastor today is to be known about, is to be about. This is why Jesus Christ came, he said. Look there in 115. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's like he clears out the way. If you are confused, endless myths and genealogies and vain discussion, let me tell you why Jesus came into the world. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the church draws to a dead halt if they lose that message, which is what this church was tempted 
or being uh, drawn towards by these false teachers. The church fails in their task. We fail in our task. If that message loses its primacy and priority in this local church. So how is Timothy supposed to nurse this church back to health? How are the leaders here at this church supposed to continue encouraging this church in health? It's by preaching the gospel. Even the Old Testament. Some people get squirreled. They think that the Old Testament is a bunch of moralistic stories with no relevance for today. But according to Jesus, everything in the law and the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. The things that they spoke about, that is the Old Testament, spoke about Christ, must, needed to happen. Namely, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of sin, for sin, on behalf of sinners. The church is to be about sinners being saved through the gospel. That's why he mentions that he is the foremost. You guys see that there? It's what every Christian, you know, throughout the course of their life, as they reflect on their position before God, they feel as if they are the worst of sinners. And so Paul says that too. I am the foremost, he says. And the salvation that he received is an example to everyone of God's mercy and God's patience. He says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, today, when we preach the law, let's say, or the Old Testament, or you're, you're realizing, you know, that you're hearing people here or pe- people in other churches preach about sin. People oftentimes forget that even though we might preach about sin, the very fact that we do so is a reflection of God's mercy and patience towards us. That every moment we have given to us by our Heavenly Father, our Creator, is given for us that we might behold His gospel. And if we haven't, if you haven't repented and believed, this moment even, where you realize that you are a sinner before God and all holy God is given to you that you might repent and believe that you might turn from your sin. That's what the law is given for that. You might be exposed of your sin and that you might fly to Jesus Christ. And Paul is the example patience. God has been so patient with people. God has shown him mercy for this reason that Paul, you might look to him and realize, whoa, uh, I don't think I've killed many people. I don't, wouldn't consider myself that violent. I wasn't working, at least in my own head, directly against the cause of God. And you might look to him and say, God saves sinners. And so we all are supposed to follow his footsteps in repenting and believing and trusting in this good God who is not only a judge but a father who calls people into his family and loves them. You see there that when the gospel is supreme, God is praised and worshipped. When the gospel is supreme, God is praised and worshipped. To get the flow right, he's telling the false teachers, don't teach false things about the law. What's the true use of the law? It's to expose our sin, lead us to Jesus, and save sinners. I am the first and foremost example of that. And then he erupts into praise. The gospel is supreme. And so he erupts into praise. Myths and genealogies do not cause people to erupt into praise. The prosperity gospel does not cause people to erupt into praise at all times. And even when they are erupting into praise, it's not for the right reasons. So it's fitting that as we see this, That after speaking of God's mercy given to him, that he is moved to praise and worship that God who saved him. This is a piercing message. Can you imagine those people, maybe you guys, who delight in talking about some particular thing, some particular head of doctrine. Uh, Let's say the timing of the return of Jesus, and that's what you're really dying for. Or maybe in your dorm rooms, you're battling over the systems of Calvinism and Arminianism, or maybe which type of tongue is given and at what point in time can we use it? Here, here, Paul, this, this eruption of praise is supposed to be a piercing lesson to us who get squirreled 
all the time. Paul says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He says, God has shown me mercy, overflowing to me grace and his love and his compassion to me, even though I was a foremost. And that's my God, the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, power forever and ever. Amen. There's no squirreling going on for Paul, but gospel centrality in everything he does to the glory of the king. You know what else I think gets us squirreled or at least tempts us from from living a life of gratitude and thanksgiving towards God in recognition of the gospel? It's not endless myths and genealogies. I think many times we just simply fail to uh, attend to our hearts. We neglect our heart's disposition towards the gospel. We might say we believe in Jesus and show up here at 9.15 for the equipped class or maybe 10.30 for service. We might say we trust in the gospel, but we're so used to being pushed around by the course of the mundane in our lives. It's like we're slot machines and people or things who desire other things just use us and they pull our arm and that's just what we do. We're being pushed around by the course of the mundane in our lives. So for example... How many of you today simply woke up, rolled out of bed, stumbled through your routine to get ready for church, found your way here, but all the while you never really threw yourself at the mercy and grace of God, which God says are new every morning in Christ. Even though you know you feel miserable, never really clinging and crying out for God to help. Though tired, you never really prayed for the strength of Christ and the power of the Spirit to help you fellowship with God in the songs that we sung. You never really threw yourself at the grace and mercy of God and called out for the strength of the Spirit to read the word that Jeremy read earlier in the scripture reading. And then in the praying, pray that the Spirit of Christ would help us pray like Jesus prayed as he was praying in the garden. Or maybe that he would give us the the attentiveness of heart to hear yet again another sermon. Friends, the devil wants us all to remain inattentive to our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. To think that there is not enough grace for your sin. To think that there are so many more worthy things worth setting your mind on and for your soul to find satisfaction in. This is one preacher who preached during the World War II era named Martin Lloyd-Jones, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He called this sort of slipping in, inattentiveness to the gospel. He called it spiritual depression. And he writes this about this, uh, this trouble. He says the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. This is the very essence and wisdom of the matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? So that's you guys waking up in the morning. Ah, you're just grumpy. It's another gray day. I got to pay bills and I got to go to this church thing. And I got so much stuff to do. What's the point of it all anyways? Didn't we sing this song the other day? And how many of these people actually mean this stuff? So that's yourself. That's yourself talking to yourself. This is a long quote, but I think it's worthy of it he says take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning you have not originated them but they start talking to you they bring back the problem of yesterday somebody is talking who is talking to you yourself is talking to you now the psalmist's treatment in psalm 42 there he's talking about the sermon where he's where he uh, exposits the line why Art thou downcast, O my soul, from that psalm? Why are you cast down, O my soul? That's what he's talking about. He says, now the psalmist's treatment there was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean? If you do not, you have but little experience. 
He goes on. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in the hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who is God and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do for you. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself. And defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with the psalmist, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. How good are you at preaching to yourself in the moment where you wrestle with the realities of life in your own sin? Friends, before your feet hit the ground, preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the grace of God, the mercies of God that are new every morning in Christ. You have been purchased by the Son. And fight to remain gospel-centered. Another thing, another encouragement, is remember where the Lord has brought you. That is what Paul is doing here. He is remembering again where the Lord had brought him from being a sinner, a persecutor of of God and his church, a blasphemer, And now he had been given, he he thinks about how he had been saved and given the task to share the gospel. He boasts in the grace of Christ and the love of Christ and the mercy shown, overflown to him. And he gets that opportunity to reflect once again because he recounts about where he's been. So I challenge you this week, a challenge for you. Carve out the time to get together with someone you do not know so well in the church carve out time to get together with someone you've not gotten to know and ask them how they came to christ and worship and praise god with them i pray that as you all get together during the week telling your testimonies to other people hearing how god has worked in their lives and then telling them how god has worked in your life that you will attend to your heart If you find that a couple weeks go by and a few weeks go by where your heart is not engaged with, let's say, the songs that we sing and the things that we read and the stuff you hear, attend to your heart. Our last point, and to conclude, we see the supremacy of the gospel in Timothy's task. The first we saw the supremacy of the gospel over the law because the law is subservient to the gospel. We saw the supremacy of the gospel in Paul's life, and now we see the supremacy of the gospel in Timothy's task. And really, this is the supremacy of the gospel in all of our tasks here as Christians. Paul wraps up this part of the letter, what we now know as the first chapter of 1 Timothy. And then he transitions to the next by bolstering Timothy's faith and courage needed to fulfill his mission. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So in order to strengthen Timothy's resolve, his courage in the mission, he points him back to when he was officially commissioned for the, for the gospel ministry. When the group of elders, chapter 4 says, prophesied over him and Paul laid his hands on him. He was commissioned to begin his formal ministry. And that's what he refers to there in 118. Timothy knows that he has divinely given gifts. He knows that this group of men who have been divinely appointed to lead the church have charged him now to go ahead and fight. Now wage the good warfare living in those truths. Divine gifts. God-appointed task. He basically says, don't get squirreled. But hold on to the truths of the faith and a good conscience. Turn over to chapter 4. You see more of what this looks like. Chapter 4, verse 13. In contrast to the folks who get squirreled over the mythology 
endless genealogies, vain discussions. He says, you, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Verse 15, he says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. Keep a close watch on yourself and your preaching. He says, persist in this. Why? For, that is the reason, by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see the supremacy of the gospel in Timothy's task there? Persist in these things. Immerse yourself in them. Attend to your heart as he is to preach the scriptures and keep a close watch on himself and his teaching. You see what's at stake, right? It's the salvation of souls that you might save yourself and your hearers. Those other stuff that people are having glorious discussions about, vain discussions all by themselves, endless genealogies, it's not going to save anybody. That's why Paul in chapter 1 heralds out to this young man, Timothy, keep the gospel central. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's what we ought to herald. And that's what we ought to believe in. That's what ought to be front and center in the life and ministry of the church. I mean, it's so serious that there Paul has to discipline people. Alexander and Hymenaeus, he had to excommunicate them. That's what it means when he says he handed them over to Satan that they may be taught not to blaspheme. But even in that, right, there is hope. Because Paul is also a blasphemer. He knows Hymenaeus and Alexander's sin. And yet even for them, there is mercy if they repent and believe. Gospel centrality for us is not an option. It is not personal preference, but it is indeed of divine command. And if this pastor, if Timothy was to nurse this church back to health, he had to recover the central message that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Our prayer, and I hope that you join me in praying, is that God would help us fight for the supremacy of Christ and the supremacy of the gospel and the life and ministry of this church and all churches around here and across the globe. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you that you reveal your mercy to us. You show us your mercy. Because we know that in our state, apart from your grace and the love that you have given us in Christ, we would only be shown wrath. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you don't only give us a little bit of your love and mercy and grace, but it overflows towards your people. Father, we pray that we would know that, yes, you are a God who exposes sin, but don't you do so because you care for us and you love us and you desire that people be saved. So, Lord, we pray that as we go out from here, that we would take on the responsibility of, yes, telling people of the fact that we stand before you as sinners, but that Jesus Christ, out of your great love and mercy with which you used to love us, you sent your son to die for sinners on the cross. Father, we pray that we truly would know more of your great and wonderful character as we behold the gospel. Change our lives, we pray, so that we would keep the gospel central in everything we do. In your name we pray. Amen.